Coming up on Tech Nation, it turns out it all starts with our feelings. That's what makes us conscious. I speak with Professor Antonio Damasio, the director of the University of Southern California's Brain and Creativity Institute. His book is Feeling and Knowing, Making Minds Conscious. Then ALS, often referred to as Lou Gehrig's disease. I'm joined by Rob Etherington and Robert Glansman from Clean Nanomedicine. Trillions of nanocrystals made of gold are now being tested as a treatment in advanced clinical trials. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In a 2013 Tech Nation interview, Poe Bronson talked about his book, Top Dog, The Science of Winning and Losing. He cites numerous scientific studies, and in many, the scientists ask people to chew sponges. I asked him, what's up with that? Scholars, researchers are really interested in measuring the telltale biomarkers of competition and performance. And this technology has gotten sophisticated enough now that you can get a little saliva uh, and you can spit into a little tube or into a cup. But the easiest way to do it today is to use a salivette and you chew the salivette like a piece of chewing gum for 30 seconds and you spit it out. And the scholars will measure all sorts of biomarkers off just this little saliva test. It could be as simple as something that's looking for like alpha amylase, a broad marker for sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight response activity, or you can get really specific with it, you know, down to uh, minute changes in testosterone levels to uh, the whole neuroendocrine cascade that uh, works through your body. At the very beginning of the book, uh, there was a, a scholar out of Germany who did this in the wine country, and she convinced a whole bunch of people to go skydive for the very first time. And they jumped out of a plane at 10,000 feet solo, you know, chewing a salivette to see exactly what was going on in their body exactly <laughs> the moment that of moment. terror. Recorded. Scaring them to death was exactly the point of I'd her swallow it. That's the problem. And, and yeah, and the, and the markers said these people are freaked out, right? But what was interesting is she made them do it uh, three times, sometimes three times over a couple days or, or, or even on the same day or even in a single hour. And what she found is that you acclimate to free-falling towards Earth at 120 miles an hour very quickly, that even your second jump, the stress level goes down by a third, and on your third jump, it's like driving in traffic, uh, that you acclimate to this very well. But meanwhile, there was this other scholar just a little north, and he was studying ballroom dancing competitions, and he was having amateur ballroom dancers who were there for the regional dance competition chew little salivettes, and no matter how much experience they'd had, whether they'd had one-year experience or five years or 10 years or 15 years, no matter what, their stress response was just as high as anybody else, pretty much close to, but not quite, a, a first parachute jump, which is interesting. So why can people acclimate to jumping out of an airplane at 10,000 feet, going 120 miles an hour towards Earth, but can't acclimate 
to the unique stress of competing, because it wasn't the dancing that was causing the stress. It was the being judged. It was the sense of winning and losing, the sense of having to avoid making a single mistake. And that is very interesting because we've heard for quite a while now that it takes 10 years of practice to become an expert, to become an authority in something, to be great at it. And we felt something was missing from that success formula. That's not wrong, just that there's an additive thing, which is that we're not judged on how we practice. We're judging how we actually perform when the band is playing, the lights are bright, and the music is going. And what it turns out is that while we all have this enormous stress flood when we have to compete, we interpret it differently. Our our bodies do. Our bodies physiologically interpret it differently, but our minds interpret it differently. That if you ask expert performers, professional athletes or professional musicians and the like, they all get really anxious and stressed out before a big performance. But they see that as beneficial. To them, it excites them, it awakens them, it gets them ready. While uh, novice performers feel that same sensation but think it's damaging their performance. And learning to go from seeing stress as harmful to seeing stress as beneficial is crucial to sort of really learning to manifest competitive fire when you have to. You might know Poe Bronson from his other books, including The First 20 Million is Always the Hardest, Nurture Shock, and What Should I Do With My Life? I was able to speak with Poe about Top Dog, the science of winning and losing on Tech Nation in 2013. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Professor Antonio Damasio, the director of the University of Southern California's Brain and Creativity Institute. He talks about our feelings. They're more important than you think. He's here today with feeling and knowing, making minds conscious. Then Rob Etherington and Robert Glansman from Clean Nanomedicine. We'll talk about their unique treatment for ALS, now in clinical trials. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now, Professor Antonio Damasio. Well, Antonio, welcome back to Tech Nation. Well, pleasure to be back. Now, I must insist that you come more frequently than every 10 years or so. So, right. I okay. Would be, I would be very happy to do that. <laughs> now, you've written 48 short chapters. And in this day and age, uh, where we're told our attention span is short, this is almost a brilliant way to write a book. It, it just seems to me a real advantage. It, yeah, I, I, I think it actually can work. And uh, um it's very interesting to pare down. Uh, and I, I think in the book I refer to haiku. And really, it's something I had in my mind to, to do something that would be pared down, chipped away as much as possible so it goes to the essence. 
Uh, it, it, I, I don't know if I succeeded completely. I think I could have pared down a little bit more and have a few more things that, in retrospect, I would like to have. But nonetheless, I was not unhappy with it when I finished it. Uh, and my editor, uh, Dan Frank, was a marvelous man and whose idea this was, because he had been after me for a long time asking me, you have to write a brief book so that you don't have 400 pages in which you splurge and you have a lot of complicated scientific arguments. Make something for an intelligent reader who is eager to understand the core of the ideas. So I finally said yes. And I must say it was an interesting experience. The only frustration I, I have right now is that after the book, you know, there's always this moment you, you, the book is in, there's nothing you can do anymore, it's edited. And in the meantime, probably because of COVID, I was able to finish several papers. And there are three in particular that have a lot of new results and they would have made my arguments even more clear and I would have been more brutal about the arguments instead of being sort of accommodating and letting the ideas sing, I would have said, no, listen, this is how it is. And so I, I'm sorry about that. On the other hand, I feel like that's going to be my next book because it's going to force me to tell the recalcitrant uh, readers, uh, and there may be some, uh, that, that in, indeed there is an argument to be made for feeling being the inaugural event of consciousness. And I think this is a, a, an important idea, uh, and it goes very counter to the typical ideas about the sources of consciousness. And, uh, and I want to stick with that idea, and as long as I'm alive, I'm going to write about that and investigate that and that alone. Now, we're talking about consciousness, obviously. We're conscious. Each of us listening are conscious. And we're conscious that we're conscious. And that in itself is remarkable. Yes, ab ab absolutely. We have, of course, this great capacity to not only be conscious, but to reflect on what we're conscious of. You know, I was just having a very interesting uh, conversation at lunch with a, with a friend of mine who was asking, well, but what about animals? Are they conscious? And he said, of course they are, uh, very much so. And of course they have feelings, which, by the way, I, I hope that you make feeling the centerpiece of your program because that is the key. You cannot start understanding consciousness if we start from the top, if you start from the marvels of our uh, image making in vision or in sound. We have to start from the beginning, and the beginning is our body, the interior of the interior of our body, and, and feeling. And, and of course, going back to the animals and the question of my friend at lunch, uh, they are conscious too. And it's very important that people understand, for many, many reasons, that animals have feelings, that animals are conscious, and because of that, that they can suffer. Um, and something that people intuitively, especially people that like to be with other living things, uh, of course, no, they don't need to be told that animals have feelings. But a lot of people do. Uh, and there are people that will say, well, animals don't have feelings, let alone consciousness. Um, and, and in fact, it's quite, quite intriguing to have people come with arguments like, well, put a mirror in front of an animal and does, does the animal recognize himself? 
And the question, the answer to that is why should the animal recognize himself? If the animal doesn't have any way of having ever constructed images about its own face. So it shouldn't, the same way that a baby, uh, um, a few months of age, will not recognize uh, himself or herself on the mirror. But that does not mean that they don't have feelings and it does not mean that they don't have consciousness. What they do not have is this huge expense of intellect that we have. And that, of course, comes from a very complex brain that has added on to this marvelous marriage of body and nervous system that allows us to be feeling and to be, as a result, conscious. That animals will not have, and we have to pardon them for not having them, um, but that's okay. Uh, we do, and we have all of these marvelous expenses of knowledge so that we have this, as you said so well, we're conscious of being conscious and we have this enormous capacity for reflection uh, and for the construction of new worlds around us. That's all well and good, but it doesn't diminish uh, the, the, the consciousness of animals. It doesn't diminish the feeling of animals and it certainly does not diminish ours. Now, you know, this sort of flips this interview upside down. And I want to say that because I was going to go consciousness, mind, intelligences. But I'm going to move on right down to the feelings that say, you write, we are thinking creatures that feel and feeling creatures that think. How you wrote those words. Very interesting. Yeah. So just say the sentence again so that I can decompose it for you. We are thinking creatures that feel and feeling creatures that think. Right. So I, on that particular sentence, that phrase, I was coming at it both sides. We are certainly feeling creatures that have also received this gift, which is the possibility of thinking beyond just our feelings. Because you see, when you start with feeling, uh, feeling is really incredibly rich but very basic. It's giving us qualities. It's giving us qualities of our being because that, curiously, uh, the evolution managed to grab on to feelings and to uh, have that as a feature that was so important because it was giving us very vital information. Once you have a feeling, whether the feeling is of hunger or thirst or pain, or desire, or well-being. It's giving you precious information right there and then. And the other thing which is so important, Mara, is that it's of necessity conscious. And it's something, when I was writing this book, I was thinking about the number of times that I have talked about this without emphasizing this point, and the number of times that you see it written as if it was just, you know, something to be passed on, is that the question that one should ask is this, what would it be like to have a feeling that you would not be conscious of? And the answer is that it's complete absurdity. All feelings from the get-go were conscious. That's their great property. And that's why I insist that from a point of view of evolution, it's an inaugural event. People, not people, creatures, prior to having feelings, did not have consciousness, probably did not have consciousness at all. They were living nice and easy because 
we have intelligences, something that you also want to talk about, and that intelligence can be covert. Bacteria, when they quote-unquote choose the right part of the environment to be in, to survive, they don't know that they're doing that. They don't have a mind. They're not conscious of anything. They're doing it automatically, intelligently, but covertly. We and the creatures that were first endowed with feeling do it knowingly. Once you have pain, and the pain happens to have uh, been the result of something hitting you, you recoil from that. Uh, Once you are hot, you can move yourself to a place that is less hot or you can try to cool down. And if you're thirsty, you can grab onto water and drink it so that you don't get more thirsty and, 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 and obviously uh, be dehydrated. All of those things are full of information, which is, by the way, the reason why I decided on the title Feeling and Knowing, because it's the story of this is feeling first and foremost and feeling producing knowing. And both feeling and knowing are already compromised with consciousness because feeling wouldn't be feeling if it wouldn't be conscious and feeling wouldn't be of any uh, um, any use for us if it would not be giving us direct knowledge that we can use for the benefit of the continuation of our life so that's the that's the the, the beauty of this story and it all hinges on feeling and the reason why i so insist on the inauguration is that Under no circumstances could this have been started upside down. In other words, it's not that we started out by making beautiful images of the outside world, whether the images that I'm looking at right now, because I'm looking, you know, the the light is coming down, there's beautiful Santa Monica mountains outside of my window. I'm looking at the Getty Museum out there in the distance. Uh, I see Bel Air over there. And it's beautiful, it's detailed. I have, uh, they're fall colors, believe it or not, in Los Angeles, they are fall colors, which is a strange thing. And all of that is enormous detail. And all of that is comes thanks to the amazing retinas of human creatures, also the amazing visual system. And But it's it's a great novelty. It comes late in the history of evolution. And it comes thanks to extremely sophisticated neural structures, brain structures, with incredibly sophisticated nerve bundles that are very modern, quote-unquote, because they're highly myelinated. You know, we're talking about cables that have complete insulation provided by myelin. They're not losing any signals. It's really an amazing machine, the kind of machine that my dear friend David Ubel uh, at Harvard, who had this gigantic steps, along with his colleague uh, Weasel, had these gigantic steps in understanding the visual system. But all of that sophistication, it comes late in our history, and it comes even later than the sophistication of sound, which is also marvelous because it allows us to have the pleasures of music and allows us to do what we're doing right now with each other, which my understanding your questions and you listening to my answers. So all of that is very beautiful, but it came very, very late. The other thing 
uh, I know I'm going on too long. But no, you're not. Keep going. <laughs> one more thing is that the first creatures that must have been endowed with feeling and therefore with this conscious ability did not have already, in all probability, the sophistication that later on we came to have with sound and vision and even with other things such as touch. So there is an order to this development and feeling in a way, in spite of the inauguration and in spite of this opening into consciousness, which is amazing, um, feeling nonetheless is a bit primitive. Uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's almost paradoxical to say, here we have this huge gift of consciousness coming out of feeling, which in the great story of uh, beings uh, ends up being more primitive than vision. And it sounds a little bit... Uh, absurd, but it is the truth, is that that came first. And once again, the reason why that came first is that because it was the way to save our lives. And in evolution, if we did not have, if we had not had that feeling grace, we would not be alive. We would be eaten by something or, or destroyed by disease more rapidly than we were in, I mean, that hour and antecedents were. Uh, so it, it, it's a very, very strange story. And, and you know, it, it makes sense, you know, when, when I think back to people whom I very much admired and that I talked to for days on end, like, for example, Francis Crick. Um, uh, Francis, who was a, an amazing intellect, who had the smarts to resolve our nucleic acids and and find out about that structure, which is clearly one of the most powerful developments in the history of biology. He made a very curious and understandable mistake in retrospect, which was to say, well, if vision is so developed as David Yubel has shown, then it must be that consciousness, which is obviously such a a, a mark, such a, a powerful signal of our own capabilities as humans, it must be that that's where we need to, to find it. And he went after this quest of consciousness through the visual system because it had to be th that marvel together with the marvel of consciousness. And uh, in retrospect, it's just the, the other way around. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's, in a way, it's, it's sort of makes us human to, to realize that you can be so creative, so intelligent, so powerful, uh, and so uh, make such contributions to science, and yet make a mistake in the approach to a problem uh, like that. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Professor Antonio Damasio. He is the director of the University of Southern California's Brain and Creativity Institute. And besides his substantive research, you may know him from his many books, including Descartes' Error and Self Comes to Mind. He's here today with Feeling and Knowing, Making Minds Conscious. Now, I'm going to go out on the limb here. <laughs> so this, that might get, this may get cut. I understand with all of this, you can really only feel one thing at a time. Is that true? 
Um, you might let me think. You might ping between. I was an earlier guest, which I did not have time to find re- recall who was telling me this. That you move from one feeling to another, but you really only have one feeling at a time. Do you? What do you think of that? Well, something very interesting, Myra. Uh, one of our uh, brilliant graduate students actually has a paper in which uh, I collaborated that is called Bittersweet. Now, what does that suggest? Bittersweet in the title suggests that, in fact, there are circumstances in which we end up feeling two things. Now, there is a very interesting research question, which is this. Is it that you feel one and then the other and you rapidly switch and you're unstable? Or is it that you actually feel both at the same time? And this is a scientific question. And uh, Anthony, his name is Anthony Picaro. Uh, Anthony plans to, to uh, is addressing that in his uh, dissertation. So I cannot give you the results yet, but uh, in a couple of years, I think we can give you the answer. Um, but I, I have a suspicion that the, 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 the one that most attracts me is the possibility that there's a rapid switch. You go in one system and then you switch to the other very rapidly. And that could, uh, that would have a very uh, interesting way, um, you know, you could account for that as the, uh, the attempt not to stay on an extreme. And especially if the first feeling is a negative one, to try to stave off that and go into a positive one as rapidly as possible, again, for the purposes of... Um, uh, homeostasis, uh, you could say for the, the survival. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, but it, that, that's a very interesting question in itself, and uh, uh, I think the the uh, the idea of, of bitter sweetness, uh, which of course you have, it permeates a lot of literature, and especially a lot of poetry. Uh, it's uh, both in in the, in the feelings of the poet as well as in the feelings of the reader. Uh, um, I think it's a very, very important question. And it's quite amazing because it has not been treated scientifically. I think that this paper that Anthony wrote is actually the first paper with the title of Bittersweet in, in terms of scientific literature. Another thing that fascinates me is the idea that independent of language, we seem to have as humans a common understanding of I'm happy or I'm sad. Let me see if I understand you. So you're... We have an understanding of a particular feeling state, okay? Yeah, common, a common a understanding, understanding of feeling state. In general, there's no confusion. If I say that I'm feeling well, nobody's going to think uh, that I'm feeling bad, uh, right? So you, you, you have the, let's say that the polarity of it is quite clear. Good goes in a certain direction, bad goes in a certain direction. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and, and that's sort of in the nature of the beast, because you have it, it's this quality. Uh, and, in, you know, it's not something like the corner of an image that you can clearly define, and there's a beginning and an end. Uh, no, this is something that waves. It's something that can go in and out and can have can have a, a, a scale over which it is distributed, which is, by the way, why music is so good to use as an analogy for feelings and 
I don't have any doubt that that's the reason why uh, um, composers and musicians to begin with started using music and making music in order to uh, transmit their feelings and to use their feelings in their imaginations. I'm speaking with Professor Antonio Damasio about his book, Feeling and Knowing, Making Minds Conscious. Our interview will continue after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, gold nanocrystals as a potential treatment for ALS. We'll talk about why and the current clinical trial underway. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I'm speaking with Professor Antonio Damasio, the director of the University of Southern California's Brain and Creativity Institute. His book is Feeling and Knowing, Making Minds Conscious. We were talking about your research earlier, one of your students' researchers or colleagues' researchers, um, and uh, but we're talking about the totality of your research and the fact that you have new research, which even underlies uh, and, and supports this. Yeah. It's not clear to me how you do this research. What What are you researching? How do you do it? Um, oh, it's, uh, that's very interesting. So the, the, the particular, probably the most interesting uh, aspects of research that I was referring to, and this is something done with a, with a colleague of mine, his name is Gilles Carvalho, and uh, is a neurobiologist, and it has to do with describing the structure of the neural elements that bring signals from the body to the nervous system. So the nerves that are distributed all over your body, in every little bit of space of your body, they're the nerves that are coming. They're in the middle of muscles, both striated muscle and smooth muscle. They're in the walls of arteries. 
uh, and arterioles they're everywhere I mean, so, so we, we have something that people sometimes don't realize is that you have these you know you can imagine them like branches of trees and in roots under under the ground and they're everywhere there's not one bit of skin or of blood vessels or any organ in our system that is not infiltrated by all these probes that are out there doing what they're out there literally sensing the state of our flesh and the, the 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 bits of research that will most interest you let me see if i can describe it in a in a clean way for uh, our listeners it, it's th- those branches are denuded those branches instead of being remember when i talked about vision and how the optic nerve has these incredible fibers that are incredibly well insulated by myelin and they're really like cables of the most sophisticated kind fabricated so that there will be no leakage of current. Now, these branches are exactly the opposite. They're leaky things. They don't have myelin around them. And and so uh, the the chemical signals that are around, the molecules that are floating in the vicinity, can immediately attack them, quote-unquote, and modify the state they're in. And that's exactly the heart of the feeling issue, is that this is not a communication in the typical way. It's not like many people have conceived, including me, you know, if I go back 20 years, I would say, well, uh, what you have is nerves that help you perceive your body. Wrong. This is the wrong image that you that we're giving to, to the situation. This is not a case of perceiving the state of our interior the same way that I perceive the state of the landscape outside. The landscape is there quietly. I'm here and the two will not meet. In the case of the body, the two meet. So I have me, myself, my body, sending through the nervous system branches into the middle of my flesh. And guess what? My flesh can talk back to those nerves happily through the molecules that are in the surround, which can be good molecules or bad molecules. It's not not interesting here. can be even the molecules, for example, of an anesthetic. And once that happens, the conversation stops. And feeling is the result of that conversation, is that interaction. And why is this possible? Because one thing is inside the other, because the nervous system is inside the body that it is supposed to commingle with and generate this novelty called feeling, which generates the novelty called consciousness. And it is completely different from the situation that you have in relation to the sounds of a dog barking that we have heard. God knows what the dog is, <laughs> uh, but we heard that sound. This came came from the outside world and entered my cochlea, my cochleas, and, and I was able to, to, to hear it. And, uh, and, and so it, it, it's quite interesting that it, it, it's this, it's, it's like... Chinese dolls, one thing is inside the other. And the two, you know, you have to have the image of the Chinese dolls, but then you have to imagine uh, branches that go from one Chinese doll to the other and that completely integrate the two. 
we're always looking for measurements. How do you measure such things in terms of your feelings? Well, you you can you can measure in terms of the feelings. It's it's not easy to do, and that's obviously one of the things that is going to be developing so much. And for example, uh, the, the, stu- the study of anesthesia is likely to give you a lot of information on that. But uh, there, there are other things that you can actually see when you study the physiology. For example, of ganglia, uh, you know, for example, your nerves as they branch in and come towards the spinal cord uh, or towards the brainstem, they actually have to go through ganglia, and so this sort of little bulbous structure, um, and you call them the spinal ganglia or brainstem ganglia, and what they are is a, a sort of a, um, carrefour. Uh, what's the, the word? Uh, a crossroads. If you have if you have a place where lots of roads are are connecting, okay, so it's something like that. You need to bring all these roads into a place and then find some kind of way of managing the traffic onto the next branch of road inside the nervous system. What is interesting is that those ganglia are bizarre also for the for the interior. Guess what? They don't have blood brain barrier. Now, blood-brain barrier is something that is around our brain to protect it and around our spinal cord and around our brainstem very, very carefully. And it avoids that the bloodstream with all of the molecules that are coursing there, you have the molecules that are being fabricated in our body and they're circulating, or the molecules, for example, of the glass of champagne that I'm going to have after we're done with our interview, <laughs> uh, or the, the the red wine you have at dinner. And in order for the brain to be relatively protected, you have that blood-brain barrier, so-called, uh, BBB. Uh, guess what? The spinal ganglia are devoid of blood-brain barrier. So what is that telling you? It's telling you that the, here you have this, this device to bring information from the body into the brain, and nature has carefully made it porous so that what's in the blood can actually influence that. Isn't that interesting? It's fascinating, and it's telling you that it is promoting the commingling of signals that you're so careful to avoid when you are dealing with the optic nerve or with the acoustic nerves. So it's really is fascinating. The design is there, and that's what's so marvelous is that some of these things were known but paid no attention to, and now we are telling the story differently because we're paying attention to this and say, wait a minute, this is right here in front of your eyes, and what's it doing, and why is it doing this? Uh, and those are legitimate questions, and I think they help uh, the, the 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 future research as well, and it helps you understand yourself. I think that's the the picture that I got from my book. It was not just a um, it was not just a question of I'm learning something about my body. It's like no, this is how it's interconnected. Professor Damasio, uh, thank you so much for coming in. You know, you're always welcome on Tech Nation. We hope to see you again. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you for your beautiful questions. And we'll have to find out 
what was that dog? Yes. Was there a dog? Was there a dog? Or did we imagine the dog? <laughs> I don't know. That dog is maybe a Tech Nation fan. <laughs> that, that could there be it. Go. That could there be it. My guest today is USC professor Antonio Damasio. His book is Feeling and Knowing, Making Minds Conscious. It's published by Pantheon. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. ALS, like many neurodegenerative diseases, such as Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, and Alzheimer's, is challenged for effective treatments. Today, we'll talk about a new and unusual treatment utilizing gold nanocrystals, which is currently in advanced clinical trials. Rob Etherington is the president and CEO of Clean Nanomedicine. Robert Glansman is its chief medical officer. Well, Rob and Robert, welcome to the program. Thank you, Maura. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Maura. Now for listeners, Rob, you're the president and CEO. Yes, founding CEO of Clean. And Robert, you're the chief medical officer. Yes, that's correct. Okay, so you got to distinguish between the two voices. You can tell kind of by what they're talking about, but I wanted everybody to hear that. Now I have you both today because this is a this is a big story with a with a reach I think well beyond this interview, and so I think it's important to get both both perspectives here on, on what we're talking about. Uh, for starters, the company is Clean Nanomedicine, independent of what Clean is working on. What's a nanomedicine? Well, I'll take that one, Maura. So, so nano means very, very small. So they're very, very tiny. Uh, and the we make very tiny crystals of transition metals. And those crystals, 10,000 of them would fit across a human hair. So they're very tiny. Very tiny. And let me add a bit of, maybe a bit of context, Maura. Um, so, so small that you can take these by mouth they go into the bloodstream, and we know they cross into the blood, the brain through the blood-brain barrier. And that is very important in, in pharmaceutical world. To get into the brain is a hard task, and a nanotherapeutic can do so. And in fact, more just to add a little bit more to that, they actually get into cells, and that can get into parts of cells. So they can actually get into little tiny pieces of cells. So not just into cells, but into little organ, what we call organelles, which are little parts of the cell, working parts. Well, that was part of my question. I mean, a regular, like a biologic, a biopharmaceutical, those are much larger, right? They're proteins? Yes, they're large proteins, and they generally just bind to a receptor, so they don't generally get into cells. They generally bind to surface receptors. Okay, so they're they're huge. Cells and proteins and receptors are huge compared to these little nanoparticles. Now, Clean is working on treatments for neurodegenerative diseases, the best known of which are perhaps Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, ALS. There's a, there's a host of them. What's meant by a neurodegenerative disease? Yeah, so a neurodegenerative disease means that the cells in the brain, the neurons, uh, are becoming dysfunctional and then dying. So they're, they're, they're ill, 
and they, they stop working correctly and then eventually they die. And when they die, they degenerate. So that's how the term neurodegenerative diseases uh, came about. And said a slightly different way, Maura, um, every one of us, as we get older, we become slower. There's a reason that these diseases you just mentioned do not happen usually in youth. They happen as we get older. So as we get older, neurodegenerative disease is becoming an increasingly larger problem as the global population continues to get older. Now, why is it when we get older that, that this would happen? Yeah, that's a great question. It's because really the, the, our, our body's ability to make energy uh, simply decreases as we get older. So there are these little engines that make energy in our body. They're called mitochondria. And these little engines, itself, each cell has, has them. And especially in the brain, the brain is very dependent on mitochondria to make energy. And in fact, the brain is very energy dependent. So your brain is about 2% of your body weight, but consumes 25% of your caloric uh, intake on a daily basis. And there's a reason for that because the brain is highly metabolically active. Um, so it has to do a lot of different things. It has to process information. It has to generate these things called uh, electrical signals. It has to make these things we call neurotransmitters, these chemicals that the cells use to talk to each other. That all requires a lot of energy. Uh, and so these little powerhouses of energy that they, we call mitochondria, as we age, there are less of them. And the ones that are there are less efficient in making energy. And, and maybe an example of this, Maura, is I've got a, a daughter in, high, in college, and she complains about how difficult college is. And I'm like, sweetheart, you are at the peak of your energy capacity right now. You should worry about it when you get to be my age at 55. And by the time you get to be grandma's age at 78, you should really be worried. So neurodegenerative diseases uh, you know, happen later in life. And from, you know, fr frankly, our, our 20s onward, it's a downward slope that we are competing against our aging central nervous system. And of course, she's in the valley of motivation. That's the problem. <laughs> exactly. And attention span. <laughs> she's in the valley of attention span, which makes a problem. Now, you're developing uh, nanomedicines in the area of neurodegenerative diseases. And the lead candidate in your pipeline is a treatment for ALS. And let's start by recalling ALS. What is it and how prevalent is it? Yeah, so ALS sounds, stands for uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, and that's a lot of words. So it's uh, more commonly known as Lou Gehrig's disease. You know, Lou Gehrig was a very famous baseball player, you know, in the 40s who developed ALS. And in fact, it's actually more common in athletes. So people who get ALS later in life tend to be athletes when they're young. It's very common in Italian soccer players, for instance. Uh, we don't know why that is exactly, but ALS is a, is a really terrible, it's a horrific disease where the neurons, the motor neurons, the nerve cells that, that, that uh, process uh, your ability to move and actually drive the muscles to contract, your, your body's muscles to contract, they degenerate and die. And uh, from the time of diagnosis, uh, the median lifespan, that is the, the, the lifespan in which, well, like, kind of like the average lifespan is only three to five years. So it's really a horrific disease. I was going to say, Robert, I think it's important that listeners understand that it's so horrific, so devastating, because everything that, that you and I consider normal, our ability of our brains to talk to our arms, our hands, our legs, to teach us how to chew and swallow, to teach us how to breathe, that in a disease like ALS, 
the patient loses the ability to control these things because the muscles that, re- that, that do all of this no longer can effectively talk to the brain. Yeah, the brain can't drive muscle contraction. And eventually what happens is, uh, you know, breathing is a muscular act, you know, from your diaphragm and your chest wall. And eventually those muscles are so weak that patients can't breathe any longer and they die from um, hypomental, you know, lack of, lack of um, respiration. As an orphan disease, that means that it's, it's relatively rare, but it is much more common than we think. And the, the, the pressing need here is that over many decades since ALS has been long discovered, there has been extraordinarily low success in developing drugs that can help this disease. In fact, worldwide, there are only two drugs presently approved in some markets to be prescribed for patients. So as a patient comes into a doctor and receives a diagnosis of ALS, there's so very little the doctor can presently offer him or her. And so that is why we have been passionate about this disease. I keep going back in in my memory. Was this the ice bucket challenge that was so prevalent a year ago or so? It was definitely, Maura. Um, Yeah, it was a a few years back and it was one of the most effective campaigns to raise money for a rare orphan disease that's ever existed. And we are grateful that ALS was able to receive uh, so much attention because there is a desperate need for all of us to understand how devastating ALS is for the patients and their families. Now, the compound you have in clinical trials today is called AU8, the letters AU and 8. AU is the symbol in the periodic table for gold. And eight means this is the eighth formulation of this nanomedicine that you've tried. Are you actually delivering gold in an attempt to treat ALS? We are actually delivering gold. And though it sounds a bit out of the box at the beginning, gold has actually been understood to have efficacy, which is a a medical term for it works to do something for many decades, in fact. And so the original kernel of this idea, the the origin story, as it were, is we had the thesis that if we could provide an atom of gold that the brain could actually use, could lever to drive energy capacity within a failing neuron or a failing cell, that something important could occur. Now, I have to tell you that I remember my father suffered terribly from rheumatoid arthritis. And then they start giving him gold shots. It was a miracle. It was like a miracle drug. Is this the same kind of principle? It is. For for about three and a half decades, gold shots were injected into the limbs of rheumatoid arthritic patients. This all stopped in the 80s with the advent of different types of rheumatoid arthritic drugs. But we are not that. We are very different than this idea, but we took the idea from this concept. But but why does it work? So your and my body require gas, so to speak, in the tank. I'll use that as a bit of a metaphor. Without energy, we can't do the things we need to do. Without energy, our neurons can't talk to our muscles. They can't talk to our mouths. They can't talk to our lungs. And so what this gold asset is doing, or this drug that we call AU8, is it's driving very important energy reactions in the body. Let me have Robert comment on what those might be. There's this molecule, really important molecule in your body called ATP. 
ATP is the sort of monetary exchange of energy that cells use to drive metabolism. Uh, and in fact, a little fun fact is that you actually consume uh, your entire body weight of ATP every single day. So this ATP does everything. It allows cells to do everything uh, that's important for cells. And one of the problems in neurodegenerative diseases, especially ALS, is that these highly energy-dependent cells, these neurons, can't make enough ATP. And they can't make enough ATP because of their, they have these genetic problems, they have these environmental stressors, and they just can't make enough ATP. And, and they end up uh, becoming you know, they end up uh, becoming sick and die. And so, and so what the breakthrough of, of clean is that these gold nanocrystals allow these sick cells to make ATP when they're under stress. Now, my recollection is my father went in for uh, every month, uh, something like that, to get another gold shot. Are these shots, is that how you deliver your nanomedicine? How do you deliver it? It's only once a day. So every morning when they wake up on an empty stomach, patients drink a quarter cup of AU8, which effectively tastes like water. And that's all they do for the day. That's it. Yep, that's it. It's a remarkably easy uh, dosing path for a, a pharmaceutical drug. Now, we always hear phase one, two, three, and then maybe the drug gets approved. Of course, only one out of nine make it. So this is, this is a rough game we're in here. Uh, phase one is quick. Is it safe and healthy volunteers? And then on to phase two, that takes longer, more more volunteers with the disease or condition, some dosage variations and the beginnings of signs that it may be working before we get to those long phase two trials where we're really looking to see if the treatment's doing the job and the drug can be approved. Now, I knew you were in phase two trials. That's when, when we booked this and got together. It's like, okay, great. You're in phase two trials. You're marching along. It's very important. But now I'm realizing that you're in something called phase two, three trials. How is that? Yes, we finished our phase two proof of concept study a few weeks ago. We were very pleased by the outcome of this data, and that enables us to continue our current progress in what's called a phase two, phase three registration study, which means effectively that this is data we can give to the FDA to see if we can get the drug registered for commercialization approval, which is to say doctors can write prescriptions for the drug. That study is presently led by Harvard through its Healy ALS Center and 50 additional other clinical sites, the most important ALS sites throughout North America. What we're studying in, that, in, that, in this clinical trial is, as Rob described before, patients function, their ability to walk, their ability to chew, their ability to breathe, their, the, uh, the, the, the amount of strength they have in their hands. Uh, so all of this is measured uh, with a clinical rating scale, uh, and then we compare ourselves to placebo. If I was a subject in this study, how long would I be on the drug uh, to track, to get some results, to see what the results are? Yeah, so we try to limit the amount of time that a person with uh, ALS has to be exposed to a placebo, because of course, this is a horrible disease. So the amount of time that you would actually be potentially even receiving a placebo is 24 weeks or, or a little bit less than six months. So um, the great thing about the design of the platform trial is that you only have a one in four chance of actually receiving placebo. You have a three out of four chance of receiving active uh, AU8 uh, in our study. 
What's really exciting about this phase two, phase three study is nearly 30 companies applied to participate. And in the end, five have been chosen. And so this enables patients to participate now at more than 50 ALS centers of excellence. Doctors that specialize in ALS at key academic centers throughout North America and has been really able to advance drug development in this devastating disease. Now, when will you get the results from this phase two, three study? We announced in early November that the study is fully enrolled, and we expect to see the full detail from the results in summer of 2022. Just next summer? Just next summer. So we're seven or eight months away. I know you're looking to treat other neurodegenerative diseases here. Um, what would be next? Uh, and would they also use gold? It's categorically true. You're very right that patients who struggle with neurodegenerative diseases as we get older, the shared way that our AUA works could assist in many such conditions. So we know that in Parkinson's disease, for instance, uh, your risk of Parkinson's disease is directly related to your age. And in fact, a little tidbit, if you reach to be the age of 130, your risk of Parkinson's disease is 100%. So it's directly related to age. And there are other diseases like progressive multiple sclerosis, where um, we know that there is a failure of energy production as well. So there are, there are many neurodegenerative diseases in which uh, AOH mechanism could be very, very important. And so we have specific clinical programs underway, Mara, in phase two, in Parkinson's, in multiple sclerosis, and there are others that we are now considering. Well, this has been terrific. I, uh, I wish you good luck, and uh, I hope you'll come back and speak with us again. Thanks, Mara. Thank you, Mara. If we can help patients that struggle with these diseases improve the energy that the cells require, we will be thrilled to improve function. Rob Etherington is the president and CEO of Clean Nanomedicine. Robert Glantzman is its chief medical officer. More information is available at clean.com. That's clean, spelled C-L-E-N-E, clean.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.